9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and we are joined this week by our regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU and Just Security. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Pretty well, David. Uh, And uh, two of our favorite people, even though we often discuss with them very heavy and dark subjects, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist uh, and leading expert on uh, uh, pandemics, diseases, and public health, Lori Garrett. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm good, David. And uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a practicing physician. She was a senior official in the Obama White House, handled health policy, also worked with Capitol Hill, is affiliated with Brookings. Hi, Kavita. Hi, How are David. you? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to start with a, a framing, um, in part because I saw Lori tweeting about this. But we're recording this on September 10th. So tomorrow is September 11th. It is the 19th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. Um, And that obviously is one of those moments that was not only defined as a kind of epoch defining right as it happened, but it turned out to be epoch defining. It changed America's role in the world, changed how we viewed ourselves, our sense of vulnerability. It's defined this whole uh, era. Um, And I think about it when I think of all the news, you know, today, right now, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, the worst Secretary of State in American history, is getting on a plane and flying to Doha, Qatar, to begin a negotiation which will effectively cede Afghanistan back to the Taliban. Uh, You know, so on September 12th, the day after, they're going to begin a negotiation to essentially hand the keys back to the people who made 9-11 possible. So that shows you how far we've come. But of course, the other big defining thing is that in, 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 in 2001, the loss of nearly 3,000 lives in, in the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and uh, on those planes was a huge body blow. An incredible shock to the American psyche. And this year, in just the past few months, we've lost 65 times that. There have been 65 9-11s as a result of COVID. And instead of it being inflicted on us by enemies, much of that loss is a self-inflicted wound. And Lori, you know, you were saying that this 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 time of year makes you blue because you were close to it. And so I just thought I'd turn to you and say, how do these things connect in your head? Yeah, well, I think I think the connection's pretty clear. I wrote a book called I Heard the Sirens Scream, where I looked at how the first 200 days of response to the 9-11 attack, what actually happened, what played out. And it was very clear that the nature of the American response, not the government, but the average, you know, Joe and Sally walking down, you know, anywhere in the uh, United States of America streets, that the anthrax attacks that came just a month later and made such a dramatic impact that people were afraid to open their mail all over America. Businesses let mail pile up in, Uh, huge stacks. The Supreme Court could not receive mail. The State Department could not receive mail. Much of government was affected by anthrax. And indeed, all over the world, this happened. I mean, there was a day they shut down the Senate in Paris because of uh, white powder seen coming out of an envelope and so on. And this just, you put the two together, 9-11 and then anthrax, and it shattered everything that was uh, preparedness, 
everything that was emergency response and everything that was public health. And President Bush's response was to securitize the CDC, to securitize most of public health across America and to look at global health as being coupled with security issues so that you had this notion that uh, came directly from 9-11 and the subsequent anthrax mailings that the CDC had to be a bioterrorism response agency. And uh, this newly created entity that we now call the Department of Homeland Security had to be a bioterrorism response agency. Uh, and the other thing that came out of it all was that we saw that the chain of command didn't work. So especially with anthrax, I mean, I documented there were actual fistfights between FBI and CDC people, that you had situations where no one would agree who could have jurisdiction over the evidence, who should treat the patients, um, what should they be treated with. And of course, here we are, Kavita and I just did uh, a, a op-ed of fair length regarding the US Postal Service and the Trump administration's attempts to cut it down and the impact on human health. Well, if anthrax was anything, it was a postal experience. And one of the lessons we take home from it was that nobody thought about the postal workers. Tremendous efforts were made to protect Capitol Hill from additional letters, to protect politicians, to protect news anchors at ABC, CBS, and so on. But nobody thought, well, who delivers that mail? So indeed, everyone who did die as a result of anthrax was a postal worker with one exception, uh, a National Enquirer reporter. And uh, we, to this day, hold postal workers in low esteem. Our, our national government response is even worse today than it was uh, immediately after 9-11. And I, I guess the last thing I would just say is on the securitization of the CDC, uh, there was great tension in 2001, 2002 um, over, you know, what's the relative role of science and scientific research at the CDC versus making it an operational agency that would be first responder kind of orientation to uh, some outbreak or bioterrorist attack or what have you. Um, that is a tension that was never fully resolved and that persists today and continues to be one of the many reasons that the CDC is not functioning properly at this time. So Kavita, I'm interested in, in, in your view on this. I don't know where you were on 9-11, but you know, the 20 years that have passed, it's essentially bookends your career so far. Um, uh, what's, what's, what's your view if there are connections between the two and, um, and, and, and perhaps, you know, addressing Lori's point, which is we raised certain kinds of awareness of the connection between public health and national security back then and have just completely let it slide in the past uh, year, certainly. Yeah, and, and Lori, your, your story kind of gave me chills because I was... Uh, so I, on 9-11, I was actually an attending physician at the VA hospital for the month in Portland, Oregon, where I did my residency and training. And, uh, you know, if you recall, because of the chaos and not knowing kind of what the um, pursuant threats were going to be, any kind of government or federal facility was on lockdown. So we immediately, we were all kind of trapped, like many people were, I imagine, like watching the news, you know, this is before. Twitter. So we were all actually watching the news. I can still remember Tom Brokaw's kind of narrating uh, the planes kind of flying in. And then I came found out uh, about hours later that one of my one of our close friends who I had gone to school with was was in the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. So, you know, there's a lot of um, I, I, there's a lot of emotions. And, and here's what I can say. What's interesting about the parallels, and then I was working in the Senate right after the anthrax period. So we still had, to Lori's point, you know, anytime a constituent, when I worked for Ted Kennedy, mailed us something, and Lori will resonate with this, it took us, you know, we, I would immediately get on the phone and say, oh God, please don't put it in the postal mail because it'll take us eight weeks to get it. And, and that was true because of the screening process that they were going through. 
I'll say the, the parallels or the bookends for me, which are not the same, that moment, it, interestingly enough, um, the same part actually, David, just let me back up then. Um, because I, I'm, uh, I'm Indian American, but a lot of my friends who were Sikh, Muslim, Pakistanis, you know, were, there were torrents of kind of racial and ethnic kind of hatred that followed in the days after, for a lot of reasons. Lori's right. A lot of people knew it was Osama bin Laden and anybody that was Muslim that looked like, you know, had a beard um, or was seen praying, you know, during the day um, became, and some of my close relatives and friends were kind of vicious racial attacks. And there's an odd parallel that's happening now, kind of, you know, in the wake of Breonna Taylor and some of George Floyd, and I mean, too many names to count. Here's where the bookends were very different though, David. There was this incredible sense of unity um, and grief, and you, you were grieving for the people who died and grieving for the firefighters, the emergency workers. And we haven't had any, you know, we've grieved in like this very abstract sense, but in a way now our country, to your point, 65 9-11s, I, I don't even know how to process that, you know? So in a way, the um, discrete kind of time period of 9-11 and the drama of being able to see the planes, which were not all the, those were not all the victims, but seeing the planes, gave the country something, you know, a memorial to put it around. How do you put a memorial around COVID-19? I mean, the entire country is enshrined in this grief. And I think, except for the president, the, the one person who throughout all of this has never shown grief. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, Melania Trump had more grief to show than the president has to date. So that's the part that's kind of ironic for me is how much the country came together and how even Bush, for all you wanted to say, I can vividly recall, Lori might cringe when I say this, I had fellow Democrats who in the days after 9-11 praised Rudy Giuliani. We can all say what you want, but you know, I think in the, in the moments people were like, oh gosh, you know, Mayor Rudy, he brought us together. Um, even Bush for all the things I just completely disagreed with his administration. You saw him grieve and, and you felt like it was authentic and, and we don't have that right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday about, about a subject I don't read much about, which is dentistry, um, in which it said that there was a, essentially um, a statewide problem of people with cracked teeth mm -hmm. that, that during the course of this pandemic, we are, we are, we're not coming together, healing as a nation, finding heroes as a nation, elevating ourselves. It's all been internalized, and 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 people are grinding and cracking their teeth. And to me, that was, you know, I mean, two hundred thousand dead people is tragic. Six million people with uh, the disease is tragic, particularly as we find out that it lasts a long time. 11.6 uh, million people still unemployed, fearing where they're gonna, you know, fearing for whether they'll be able to keep their families under a roof. That's tragic also. But the, 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 the fact that everybody else is so tortured by this and doesn't have a channel to express it or a leader to help them with that, it's, 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 it's another dimension of all this. So Ryan, I wanna ask you the same question and then you can go and turn to Lori and Kavita and start uh, posing questions based on this uh, Woodward book. Sure, so um, I thought to just mention one kind of reflection, but use it as a segue into the Woodward book and that part of um, our conversation. So that for me, uh, you know, just one item that unites what happened on 9-11 and what we're experiencing now is what Brett McGurk had actually said in this show, which is the intelligence briefings that um, you know President Bush received before 9/11, um, the one from the CIA and the intelligence in the President's Daily Brief in August that said you know Osama bin Laden planning to strike uh, in in the United States, and what everyone might think about that history, we now have, you know, from the Woodward book 
even more information about how this was not like a one-off on one day in September, but it's been a slow rolling emergency, public health emergency with multiple pieces of information coming into the White House and into the president alerting him to the severity of the situation. So that one of the revelations in the Woodward book is this uh, January 28th um, top secret intelligence briefing in which the national security officer, uh, Robert O'Brien tells Trump that this will be the biggest, quote unquote, the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency. And the deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, agrees and says that it is evident that the world faces a health emergency on par with the flu of 1918 um, and uh, warns the president about the asymptomatic spread. So it's all there um, in that one time as well. But we know of multiple other instances in which the intelligence community had warned the president. And I do have some, so this, it's just a remarkable dereliction because he knew he was fully informed and it's not that he then didn't act on it, but he engaged in affirmative disinformation towards the public so that the public was left in a much more defenseless situation. So that's to me just a stark comparison between the two um, atrocities. In a sense. So, can, I, can I pile right on that one? Because yeah, you're, you made me remember something. Um, so 9-11, the one thing that nobody wanted to do except a handful of public health people was to see it as a health event. Uh, but of course, molecules were produced that have never previously existed on planet Earth because of the unique circumstances of the high compression of 110 stories squashing, pancaking down, and then the tremendous heat of more than 3000 degree inferno at the base that burned for three months. And in that process, burned up computers and all these rare earth elements that were in the computers producing toxic chemicals. Um, and that plume of toxic event blew to the most populous part of the city, Brooklyn, uh, almost continuously for nearly four months. Uh, at the time in defining the event, the White House had a brand new um, uh, environment advisor to the president who'd only come in a few days before the event. Uh, his prior position was as an attorney defending Johns Manville, the major asbestos producer of planet Earth. And so he instructed Christy Todd Whitman, who was then running EPA, this is not an asbestos event. And this is not a toxic health event. They specifically defined the health zone as being only the tip of Manhattan, which is very low populated, high little area where Wall Street is located, and specifically excluded the entire population of Brooklyn from its definition as a health event. And to this day, we, we live with that legacy of the World Trade Center uh, health registry cannot, excludes all Brooklyn, excludes all of Manhattan except below Canal Street, which if you're not a New Yorker, let me just tell you, it's a tiny little postage stamp element of the city is, is included along with first responders. So having a White House big lie is not new in and of itself. But I think what makes this even more extraordinary as a big health lie and a big, um, uh, if you will, cheating a populace out of its own rightful uh, sense of um, medical justice, of health justice, um, is that this is an event that's still ongoing, it has no end in sight, that started you know, back in December, and that has claimed millions of lives. So, I mean, millions have been infected, hundreds of thousands have died. And we're certainly at 200,000 deceased now in America. And so each lie has, as, as David put it, 65 9-11 attacks behind it. 
but each lie has um, a compounding effect. And then you add to it in order to justify the lies, in order to provide um, a rationale to, to claim that, oh, it's really just like the flu, or oh, it's, you know, everybody can go back to school, or, or whatever lie is being told, it was necessary to undermine legitimate public health, to undermine the legitimate voices of science and reason to such a degree that now latest polls are showing even Tony Fauci's level of support in the general society is falling. That most Americans no longer once ranked the number one most trusted agency in the American government, the CDC, is now way down towards the bottom of the list. And the FDA, we all know, is under so much pressure to approve a vaccine that the nine top vaccine manufacturers had to put out a letter saying, hold on, let's slow down, guys. We actually want it to be safe. Mm -hmm. We actually want some testing done. Um, so I guess one thing I'd like to do before any specific question is also just maybe turn it to you, Kavita, as well, about what you draw as some of the greater significance from the Woodward revelations. And in a sense, Lori's already touching on it for sure. But the, you know, the two are, just to remind listeners in a certain sense, two additional ones that are February 7th, um, the president confides in Woodward that he knows that the transmission is airborne and that, according to the president at that time, his information was that it was five times more deadly than the quote-unquote most strenuous uh, flus. And then in March, he tells Woodward, uh, quote, really, to be honest with you, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down, and, you know, end quote. Um, so what were, just Kavita first, uh, what were your reactions to what was new in that or what significance you drew from what we've heard so far from the Woodward book. Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep it brief. In preparation, Ryan, because you're always such an outstanding scholar, I did a little kind of chronology backed up with kind of, you know, what, what, what were the facts that we knew out what we heard from the Woodward tapes? So Jan very brief, January 21st, that's when the CDC confirmed the first kind of US case of the coronavirus, someone who came from China. Um, and then we have January 28th, where we, knew, we know that the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, kind of basically sent up a flare saying that this was, this was significant, it was dangerous. Um, then to just go back to your February 7th comment, the thing that's amazing to me that I just can't help, um, and I hope listeners kind of understand, viruses don't, you know, this isn't something, think of it as like a, taking a flame to something and having the flame spread and that's kind of how the virus spread so it wasn't as if th there was so much that we could have done back then and i was really struck uh and have had dialogue with several colleagues some of whom who worked in the white house with for president trump and i said did he really realize the airborne potential mm -hmm. of this was that really true and and candidly they've said no, I don't think he understands the difference between respiratory or airborne. So I think that was also striking because it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, we were still, um, there were CDC scientists and officials who said we should all be wearing masks from, from the get-go. And, and you, were, you, were, you will recall, Ryan, David, Lori, there was such pushback. You know, we shouldn't wear masks, even Fauci. All of us were saying, you know, medical personnel need to do it. But for the rest of us, don't go out and run and buy masks. And so I thought that that was interesting that he made these comments to Woodward about it being airborne. But people who know him have said, no, he just doesn't understand the difference between airborne slash respiratory. And then I think the other point, uh, March 19th, where he does this kind of back and forth, Ryan, as you talk about with it saying he had to play it down so the public doesn't panic. You know, right around that time, that's when we declared a national emergency. March 17th is the infamous start of the University of Minnesota's hydroxychloroquine trial, followed shortly thereafter by Donald Trump saying, like, what harm does it do? It can't be that bad. Some of these infamous moments. And I think that's what's so obviously you would think I would pick from these moments kind of Woodward's um, back and forth on COVID, but I'll parallel that with 
his complete lack of authority for the generals. And we, I don't even, you know, we can say some of these words, but I've got children in the house and I don't want to say like what he characterized some of these generals as. And I think when you take those two things together, it makes so much sense that he had no respect for Fauci and you know, fill in the rank and file of some of the most senior prominent scientists, officials, and forget scientists. You know, I heard the Senator from Indiana today talking about how well the scientists didn't think it would be this bad either. Fill in the blank with anybody who had a, a brain in their head. And you can see he just blatantly didn't respect them and clearly was putting on a show for the American public. And I know there's this tension about whether Woodward should have released some of this. I don't know where you all fall. I feel like, you know, if you're Bob Woodward, it wasn't just to write a book and make a lot of money, although I'm sure that was a pretty important driver. He's hearing the president say this while we were all dealing with the reality on the ground and we didn't really understand. You know, Lori, you did probably earlier, but most Americans did not really appreciate the gravity of the situation with the coronavirus. And it wasn't until well into April when people kind of stopped and said, wait a minute, you know, maybe this isn't just a New York Governor Cuomo thing. Maybe we need to start taking this a little more seriously. But even today, as we speak, we still know that many Americans actually do believe the president's words, that this is a hoax, that you don't need to wear masks, and that, you know, all the rallies, Sturgis, Tulsa, you know, you name it that those were all important events and were not super spreader events. So those are, those are my takeaways from the Woodward excerpts. I have a you know, couple I, of thoughts along those lines. I mean, first of all, you left out July 21st, but, his final yeah, yeah. interview with Woodward in True. which he says, it's not my fault <laughs> in reference right. to COVID. Um, right, I right. thought uh, last night, Trevor Noah on his uh, daily show, I thought hit the right note about all of this because I have to admit what startled me when I listened to the tapes, not read the quotes, but listen to the tapes, is that Trump came across reasonably intelligent and had and thoughtful. And that makes it even worse. Hmm. It makes it even more evil that he knew full well, he knew full well this wasn't the flu. But he was out saying, it's nothing, it's just like the flu. He knew full well there was reason to panic, but he was out there deliberately downplaying everything. And by the way, at the time that he's saying there's nothing to panic about and he's trying to tone it all down, that's when New York goes on full lockdown. And all we're hearing, all I'm hearing 24-7 out my windows is ambulances around the clock. So panic, schmanic, man, we're going nuts here right? Um, maybe it wasn't a sense of panic around St. Patrick's Day in Iowa, but it sure was in New York. Um, and I, I guess my, my line around should Bob Woodward have revealed the information, I put it right up there with Bolton refusing to testify before the House uh, uh, committee uh, on the grounds that he had a book that he was going to be coming out and all the juicy stuff would be held over for the book and look what happened to him nobody bought that book everybody figured out ways to get it uh, for free it got pirated all over America and it was a sense like this guy sc screwed up uh, everything that was trying to be accomplished by the house so we refused to give him the money for the book and I, I wouldn't be surprised if some people don't feel the same way about the Woodward book so let me pick up on a couple of points there first of all I agree with your point about Woodward he should have come forward with this stuff, just as Bolton should have, just as Michael Schmidt should have uh, with his reporting to, for the New York Times. There are bigger issues here, bigger obligations to the audience. Um, but one of the, you know, to go back to the analogy with 9-11, I'm not as exercised as everybody is that the president, you know, this Woodward revelation says the president lies. The president's lied 20,000 times. The president lies all the time. We know the president lies. Mm -hmm. And we also saw the intelligence. We, we knew what was going on back then. And we knew that he knew. That's not what gets me. Um, I mean, you know, there were, there were a lot of lies going on around 9-11 as well. What gets me is that the two defining crises of the American 
society in the past 40 are 9-11 and COVID. And in both cases, the federal government made them worse. In both cases, the federal government looked at them, saw them through a political lens, and hundreds of thousands of people died. 9-11, it led to the death of 300, 400, 500, 600, 800,000 people in Iraq who had nothing to do with this. Innocent civilians on the heads of the, of the Bush administration forever. Now, 200,000 people are dead. It may be 400,000 people are dead. And yet, as latest, and, and, and by the way, Trump's line, and sorry for the question being so long, Trump's line that I didn't want people to panic, I actually think is gonna work. I think that his constituents will say, yeah, of course, that's, that's leadership. But he didn't push for masks. He suppressed the data. He did not get the resources to states that needed the resources. He politicized this in a way that exacerbated the costs of it. Um, and he continues to do it. So, you know, I mean, one of the things about Bush was he learned his lesson. Halfway through, you know, by, by 2003, he realized that Rumsfeld and Cheney were, were, were screwing him, that they were making a mistake. He got rid of Rumsfeld. He played he down Cheney's invaded, role. But he still he's, invaded, and he still thought that there'd be palm fronds mm -hmm. waving his way in to Baghdad, and he still put no, a total crook in charge of, you know, a mountain, a literal mountain of cash. Total, totally agree with you. What I'm saying is, he ultimately, after that, after the invasion, he learned something and corrected. Trump has learned nothing. And, and, and so what I'd just like to do is go to Lori and, and go to Kavita. I have a different question for you, Ryan, but go to Lori and go to Kavita and, and, and ask you, in, in light of what we know, where, does the, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, Trump is compounding his errors, it seems to me. And we're heading into the fall. And, and, and so how do you ex ex extrapolate from Woodward and now to election day and after? Well, Woodward, if he did a service with this book, and with sitting on his interviews all this time, if he did a service, it was that when we're just 50 some days away from the election, um, we're getting another layer of understanding of the big lies. Um, you know, we last week would have been talking about nothing here except this pell-mell rush to come up with a vaccine and approve God knows what. And if it was the week before, it would have been the pell-mell rush to approve convalescent plasma therapy, which we now know is really pretty useless. And it's not without side effects. It's not a risk-free procedure. Uh, it, we are still at a point on the vaccine front where I am in great, great fear that something is going to be allowed, an emergency approval, uh, you know, right around Halloween. And that, you know, Ivanka or Jared or Eric will go on camera and get their arm poked and tell the MAGA crowd to line up with your MAGA hats and show how patriotic you are to get a vaccine. Um, and I just think this would, I mean, it's potentially catastrophic in, on so many levels. I don't even know where to start. And here's the problem for me. I think even if after however many days it takes to count the vote, Joe Biden wins by an avalanche. And it's not disputable, though I'm sure there will be dispute anyway, but that it's not genuinely disputable that he is the victor. Even then, I think we're in an incredibly dangerous position because 
Trump has levied the lie game so effectively that uh, left, right, middle, nobody knows who to trust in government anymore. So nobody's going to trust a, 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 any particular pronouncement about COVID, whether it comes from the CDC, it comes from the FDA, it comes from the NIH, comes directly from the mouth of Tony Fauci. We're going to have doubt. It's now permanently embedded doubt. And this is going to make everything about fighting this epidemic far more difficult and it'll carry right over. So now what we'll see is if there is a good vaccine in let's say next March, uh, the, the data's cracked, it's looking really good, it's offering better than 90% protection to the individual and there's no serious side effects observed, unlike the new AstraZeneca vaccine, which has caused this poor 22-year-old woman's entire spinal cord to inflame in a way that will, she will be in pain for two or three years now. Um, uh, it, but it really works and it really doesn't seem to have side effects. Well, you know what will happen is the Trump base will start massively being opposed to it. And it, it, we've created a kind of partisan sense of truthiness. Uh, that will defy the capacity for our public health leadership, our medical leadership to possibly get anything close to artificially induced herd immunity in our society via a vaccine. And so, I mean, I think the damage done is just overwhelming. It's it, whoever ends up being in charge, if there is a Biden White House, inside that White House, whoever ends up being in charge of messaging and trying to come up with a strategic plan for getting Americans to accept public health messaging around this pandemic, that, that person's going to have to be a miracle. So, but, but I just want to say before, Kavita, you, you respond to the same question. Just as a footnote, <coughs> I watched, listened to testimony from the Surgeon General yesterday. And it seemed pretty innocuous. Mm -hmm. He seems like a pretty innocuous guy. But the thrust of his testimony was trust vaccines. It was very clear to me that what he was doing was setting up a predicate to a big push on a vaccine that maybe you shouldn't trust. Anyway, Kavita, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I I saw the same thing, and and you're right. He is actually like a decent person, Dr. Jerome Adams, a good guy, but it felt like it was a campaign, right? It didn't feel like testimony with here's let me you know let me give you the facts on the ground and let me give you my analysis or at least even even a political message. Um, I could completely understand. It felt like some sort of part gimmicky campaign, and that's and by the way. That's sadly what the Surgeon General's office has kind of been reduced to over the last several administrations, to be blunt. So I'll say, moving forward, Lori's right. There's so much damage that's been done. It's hard to know, even if it is a Biden administration, how to kind of get out of this sinkhole that we're finding ourselves in. Having said that, I actually do, you know, I see... Um, when I look at kind of the hospitalizations and what we've learned, I'm, I'm trying to put something positive because I, I actually do see it. We're recognizing it's not necessarily well validated in literature or randomized controlled trials, but we're recognizing chronic effects. We're trying, despite the incompetence at the top and utmost levels of our once esteemed agencies, we are trying to do what we can clinically. I think that there's incredible will to do anything possible. I don't know if you saw, but breaking news today was a 28 year old um, African-American teacher who died in South Carolina of coronavirus. And I think that's setting a lot of parents who are very frustrated that their kids are in remote learning situations or hybrid situations. And I think it's just another reminder that this virus knows no boundaries and that just when we think we're tired and frustrated, the virus shows us you know, who's boss. and I think going forward, even if we have, to Lori's point, a vaccine, and let's say, Lori, even if it's 50% you know, effective, yeah, I'll take it, because right now I don't have much, but I'm also kind of optimistic that there's some very low-cost, low-tech solutions, everything from the way we ventilate patients, dexamethasone, a very cheap steroid that nobody's going to make money off of, 
that's actually been shown to help patients. And even the woman in the UK with transverse myelitis, guess what? That's actually a known effect of the coronavirus, the spinal condition she has, the inflammation of her spinal cord. So, but what do we treat it with, with steroids? So going forward, I, I have to have, it might be Pollyanna, I have to have faith that people like me who took time to go to medical school and train, that we're gonna focus on what matters despite the incompetence and the stupidity. And, and I'm trying to pivot in the next 58 days. I actually think that teaching people how to vote safely, whether it's by absentee ballot, which is pretty darn safe, theoretically, if the postal service, as Lori mentioned, stays somewhat, somewhat competent, but also how they can vote in person safe. And I'm looking forward to kind of concentrating on that because early voting, even November 3rd voting, we, we have to make sure that there's integrity to that. And I think part of it is gonna make, we have to make Americans feel like it's safe to vote or I worry we'll suffer from having this entire idiocy of an administration repeat itself for four more years. And the damage it'll do then is, we've already done generational damage. The damage in four years, if we keep this administration in place, I can't even imagine the damage that'll be done, but it, it'll affect my grandchildren, candidly. I hope you're gonna write and do other things around this issue of how do you vote safely? Yeah, we, we, uh, it, it'd be great. Yes, I would love to get deep state. Here's an open call for deep state folks to DM, email, whatever. I, I think I just was talking to a bunch of names that mean a lot in healthcare, but we need to figure out how to translate this so that it becomes broadly available. People, including poll workers, you've seen the shortage of poll workers we have. Um, President Obama and others have kind of tweeted and commented on it. We need everyone to feel safe. And I don't trust, I certainly don't trust this administration to help do that. So we, we have to take that on and I, I definitely plan to do it. Very, very important. Uh, we've only got three or four minutes. I'm gonna ask Ryan, I want you to ask, I'll ask you a question that's gonna be a non sequitur. It's gonna take a minute or a minute and a half and then I'll come back to Lori and Kavita for a one minute question. But, um, you know, yesterday you did a, a two part tweet that talked about what had happened in the past 12 hours in the United States. And part of it was about the Woodward book. Um, and by the way, even though we're friends and we do this podcast every week, I gotta tell you, if you're not following Ryan and you're not following Just Security, you're making a big mistake. It is such an incredible resource. And as Kavita noted, Ryan is so careful in, in how he presents things and everything is always backed up. I, I don't want to embarrass you, Ryan, but it's, I, it just, it's, a, it's a real potent resource. And you just, you, you pumped off six or seven points and I just don't want it to all to get lost. So if you could just talk about what the five or six points were, and then I'd like to come back with a quick question for everybody. We only have three, four minutes. Um, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I am embarrassed by your comment, <laughs> so thank you for it, but um, it's too kind. Um, I guess I just, so yesterday was a whirlwind of revelations that I thought were united under one kind of a heading, which is ways in which this administration or this president in particular has made Americans less safe. Um, so one is hiding public health information from Americans to alert them to the true threat of coronavirus. And not only the lives that have lost because of that, but also the economic disruption and people in unemployment <clears throat> with jobs lost and the rest. It's just one piece that happened yesterday that we learned about, but the other one was the whistleblower whose name we have now, um, he's on record as a whistleblower saying that the DHS has pushed Intel analysts to lie about the threat to Americans from white supremacists, even though that's the greatest domestic uh, terror threat, uh, to lie to Americans about the Russian threat. They were actually trying to tell the senior intel analyst not to provide that information because it would be inconsistent with the misinformation that the president was spreading. Same whistleblower said DHS pushed him and the analysts to exaggerate the threat from Antifa. Um, Woodward also reveals to us that Trump just wants to show off to Woodward and by showing off to Woodward, he leaks the fact that the United States has a secret nuclear weapon system, um, which is 
putting Americans at risk by doing that. And then same day Politico reports on a, an official whose name is Paul Alexander in HHS who is trying to muzzle Fauci from warning Americans about threats from coronavirus, including, it's just so sickening, um, threats through the transmission of coronavirus through children. And all of that was within uh, 12 hours. So I thought that that all kind of pieced together what we had just learned, even though it was a kind of a hurricane of uh, revelations. Well, one thing that struck me about that, besides the excellent summary, was that they're all the same crime. Yeah. It's all the US government dealing in misinformation in ways that undermine the security of Americans. So my, my, my you know, lightning round question here, uh, Lori and Kavita is this. Um, we, 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 in, in campaigns, we talk about October surprises. Some people are like, oh, maybe the Woodward book is the October surprise. Mm -hmm. um, Trump has now said, well, we're turning the corner on this. And it's very clear that Trump thinks there's a October surprise uh, vaccine out there. That is, he's gonna, it's gonna get announced or released or some kind of bullshit presentation of it is gonna make its way out into the press. I wonder though what October surprises the virus has in store for us. And uh, so first Lori, then Kavita, what do you think? Well, first of all, we're, we're just right out of Labor Day weekend. It's too soon to know how much of a bounce the virus got by you know, people's behavior over Labor Day holidays. Uh, we'll, we'll know how bad that is uh, in the next roughly eight to 10 days. Uh, and I hope we don't see a huge bounce in cases, but we may very well see a big one. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of concern here in New York that we've, we've had a honeymoon. You know, we paid a huge price in the spring We've come through the summer with the last 60 days, our incidence has never gotten above 1% of new cases a day uh, out of those tested. And for the last 30 plus days, it's been below 0.8%. So there, I think there's a lot of concern that, geez, we've, we've gotten pretty far down this road without a sudden surge in New York. What if? Uh, we suddenly see whether it's the Labor Day effect or, or people returning to college or, or what it might be. Uh, and of course, schools are not yet open in New York, but they will be opening soon. And there's tremendous concern about that. Nationwide, I think, uh, we, you know, the last eight days have seen a 9.2% decline in new cases, which is incredibly good news. Uh, but the states that are going up are all connected to that Sturgis motorcycle event. Um, and now with the fires in the West and huge numbers of people displaced and likely to be co-housed in ad hoc situations, uh, we may see a spread uh, in the West of COVID again um, as a result of these incidents. And I think what this all tells us is that COVID takes advantage of human behavior. We are the amplifiers ourselves. And whatever social, political, uh, or other event occurs that makes large numbers of humans change their behavior for some specific amount of time are likely to enhance spread of the virus. So Lord knows what's gonna happen in the next 50 days, but even in the best of years, this is the crazy time of, of an election. Anything can happen. Amita. Yeah, just very briefly. Um, the only thing I'll add to that is that I think October, we're seeing cases, just the status of COVID kind of today are, it's actually stabilizing the reproduction number, the R naught of the viruses around 0.91 to 0.95, meaning kind of one person who gets infected infects like 0.91 persons, just to put it bluntly. However, we're seeing states, multiple states in the US where there's rising cases and hospitalizations. Um, and these are very red states, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, um, Iowa, North Dakota, the Dakotas, et cetera. 
And then we're seeing kind of an uptick of cases that are slightly concerning to me in Europe. So what does October hold? October could be an incredibly dramatic, like, you know, interchange, whereas um, instead of talking about the blue states, it's the red states that are really under siege and less and less testing available. And then my biggest fear is if we see a, you know, we don't think that there'll be so much shift in the strains from a genetic perspective, but man, all this gets blown out of the water if we see something emerging that causes us to be concerned enough that we're gonna have to deal with this virus the way we deal with the seasonal flu and that we're not one and done with a vaccine, which is what we think we are right now. And, and that could hit us depending on what's happening around the globe, that could hit us in October. And we could see, and, and certainly if we also see what the University of Washington is predicting as kind of, you know, these de deadly months, we could see the deadly December month kind of shift up a little earlier. And that's what I'm worried about. Well, it's plenty, plenty to be worried about. Uh, we've gone a little longer than we normally do, but uh, the reality is when we have Lori and Kavita on the show, we tend to go a little longer than we normally do um, because we like talking to them. We like them and they're smart. And I think what the, what they have to say is is super important. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful. And I hope we can do this again soon, uh, Lori and Kavita and um, uh, obviously Ryan as well. And uh, we hope that, you know, you will join us again in the weeks to come. We've got a lot to come. Uh, in fact, just before this episode, and I won't get into the details, but Lori and Kavita and, and Ryan and the team were talking about a, a bigger thing we've got potentially coming in, in terms of looking at COVID and this crisis. Um, uh, and please, you know, keep an eye out for that and similar things by going to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, and also, if you're there, you know, there's no harm in, in signing up and, and, and supporting us through membership. Uh, in the meantime, thanks, Lori. Thanks, Kavita. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to everybody for listening uh, and stay healthy. <laughs>